Hello, founders and friends. My guest today on The Raise is Jason Atkins. Jason is the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Cake Equity. From the warm, sunny climes of the Gold Coast, Cake makes creating and managing equity plans simple for early stage startup founders. Jason was born to be an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurship spans multiple generations in Jason's family. He started his first business to get himself through university and built his first startup in the crypto space in 2017 before discovering a problem in startup equity that he really wanted to solve. In this episode, you'll hear the strategies Jason applied to de-risk his transition from a well-paid, secure job to startup life, how he met Jason Calacanis and convinced him to lead a capital raising round, and how to raise capital successfully in the current climate. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru. Raise capital successfully and faster with Termsheet Guru so your startup can make an impact. If you'd like to learn how to raise capital like a guru, check out one of our free capital raising webinars. Head to termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. Now, let's dive in. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Jason, your company is Cake Equity. What's your elevator pitch? Cake makes equity simple for early stage tech companies, particularly founders. And what's your big audacious dream? We are building a global platform for startup equity for millions of users so that there can be liquidity and global equity portfolios. So yeah, it's a pretty big goal from the Gold Coast as well. So it's a fair achievement if we, or when we get there. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll dive into cake equity more in a minute. I want to go right to the very beginning. You come from an entrepreneurial family. Your grandfather owned businesses in a number of industries from property development to water skiing, and your family owned and managed the Peninsula Apartments in the Gold Coast. Jason, were you involved in any of those businesses? I was very young, so I can't claim responsibility for any of that. But we were always around businesses. I was very, very young during that period. I think the building industry was before my time. That was in New South Wales, sort of early middle of my grandfather's career. And then after that success, he moved into business ownership, sort of the action sports industry. And I think that I was still probably not born at that point. I think when I was born, he was in Aspen with my grandma. So all of our family moved to the Gold Coast when we took over the peninsula. So that was when I really got immersed into business for the first time because my mom and my auntie and my uncle and my grandparents were all there. You know, they lived in their manager's flat and we were, we were constantly there. And so, yeah, it was good exposure. What was it like living in the Gold Coast in this big holiday apartment? It was absolute paradise. Yeah, it was amazing. I, we had indoor, outdoor tennis courts and swimming pools and huge grounds to play in. And so we're, I was extremely lucky. I was a sporty kid and it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. You were a high achiever in school and university. You studied for a Bachelor of Commerce, majoring in finance accounting, very similar to me, and you studied at Griffith Griffith University. It was here that you started an accounting business while you were studying. What was the business? I can't remember what it was called, but yeah, essentially I did bookkeeping and accounting for small businesses on the Gold Coast while I was at uni. It was a much better way to earn money than my mates working in, in fast food or service station or what have you, as you do when you're straight out of school. So yeah, it was an awesome opportunity for me and it was very easy. <laughs> so it was a good, it was a really easy way to, to make a bit of money while I was at uni. Why did you decide to set up your own business rather than say working for your parents? 
I was a pretty independent kid. I really wanted to always be out on my own. I still have that hugely strong autonomous streak. And so it just gave me a lot of control over my own situation. Was there anything with um, your family's entrepreneurial background that influenced you growing up as a kid? Yeah, definitely. Many stages through my life, not just when I was a kid, but uh, I think being around my grandfather particularly, I spent a lot of time there. I used to go there every Saturday and do jobs and stuff and, and learn from him. And no, it, you, you do, you can't, you can't not learn from strong people like that with that are so principled and disciplined and, and successful. So, you know, you learn a lot of lessons. And then over the years, for me, it's been very inspiring what is achievable. And I still can't believe all the stuff that he did, you know, like in one lifetime, you know, it was always shocking to me what he'd achieved because it wasn't just that he was a pilot and he won air races and, and then he had time to you know, teach me golf and stuff. And I was always just in shock. And so it has been inspiring for me, you know, quite a bit in my career. And when he passed away, you know, it gave me another huge kick in my career as well. It was very, very motivating. So yeah, it's great to have influences like that you know, in your life. In what way was it motivating when he passed away? I guess it was like, I don't know, you have these reflective moments where you sort of think, well, what, what do I want to achieve? I just maybe really think, well, am I achieving as much as I can? Am I having a, as much of an impact as I can? And yeah, it was, a, it was a real kick forward for me. I wanted to make sure that when time stopped, my scorecard was full. <laughs> Especially combined with my, you know, like I was really bright at school and I know you said I did excel and I did, but I was like super lazy and <laughs> I, I didn't want it to be like, hey, plenty of potential, kind of a bit lazy <laughs> whatever. <laughs> didn't think that was going to cut it. So combining those two things, I think, you know, I really always wanted to make the most of of my abilities and I sort of, it's a weird sort of spiritual thing almost. It's like, why are you given these abilities if not to utilize them, it doesn't make any sense to me. So that's kind of inspiring as well. Following university, you spent almost a decade working in the finance industry, first with MasterCard in London and later with a family office back in the Gold Coast. How did you become interested in startups? Well, I've always had an interest in investing and I was able to do that in the family office. I really enjoyed the family office investment role and I was trying to get them to invest in technology, even though they're very, as many family offices are, quite conservative. And I, I loved working there, but I, I had a thirst for, I'm always sort of in the future. I'm a big picture thinker. I kind of live in the future all the time in my head. And so technology companies really resonate with my way of thinking. And I, I can sort of see what's going to work, like to some degree, without trying to sound arrogant. Like I have the ability to sort of, you know, it's not that hard. I don't know if it is hard, but it doesn't seem that hard for me. You know, looking for trends trying to find momentum and so that was kind of inspiring and then like honestly the role I had was, for, was I was there for five years I'm not really like a life kind of guy you know like I'm really energetic and so I just had to do something new and there weren't that many jobs like that I could do that I could earn enough and or big enough to fit like a proper CFO into them on the Gold Coast I was hardly any when I was doing my research so it was kind of like half choice half necessity I was like well if I want to earn what I want to earn have the kind of impact I want to have I have to do this I have to do it myself so it was like pretty shocking time <laughs> <laughs> built something to employ yourself in <laughs> pretty much you changed the yeah. world while you're at it. <laughs> 
So I understand you actually moved back to the Gold Coast from London to raise a family. Unfortunately for my career aspirations, I have a strong family streak, <laughs> which of course is, is awesome in a lot of ways. But the big right-hand turn from London to the Gold Coast was obviously a massive culture shock and a huge handbrake on my career and, and you know, took a little bit of time to navigate. But um, fortunately, I was able to do that with the family office role. But yeah, it was really important to me to, to have a family and to be here near my family for that period. And plus, my I was, with, I was in London with my now wife and it was basically like, are we doing this or not kind of thing. So then, again, it was like I had a choice to make, but it, it wasn't really, I, you know, I couldn't really choose the alternative. So, you know, it was, it was a happy compromise, I guess you could say. Is she in Aussie? <laughs> yeah, we went over together. So we met here and, and we just met before we went. And then we had wonderful five years traveling the world together and experiencing London. And then um, she stayed an extra couple of years for me because, my, you know, I was working in the city and my career was going so well and she was well and truly over the weather and I had to bribe her with lots of European trips and, and stuff like that to get the extra couple of years done. But, you know, we, we had a great trip and came back and then, you know, became grown-ups and did all the grown-up things. And What years were you in London? It was 04 to 09, so it was really was the heyday. It was really incredibly pumping. Obviously, we were there for the beginning of the GSC as well, which wasn't as good and, and all the challenges that that came with, but I don't think the hardest elements of that had hit, sort of hit around 9, 10 over there, and I think more like 10, 11 here. But, um, yeah, we had a wonderful time. London was on fire, really. It was. I was there at around about the same time from 06. And yeah, it was definitely the heyday back in those days. <laughs> it was on fire. You guys used to say you could go out every single night to a different awesome place and never go to the same place twice for like years on end. Everything was on the company account. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like MasterCard, we had the best expense budget in the world. Like, it was fantastic. Families take up a lot of energy, time and money, as you know, and so do startups. So was Cake Equity a side gig? at the time while you were working the Gold Coast? No, not at the time. I did a couple of things as side gigs. So my wife and I had like a funny little startup called Safe Homes as my first experiment. So my wife works for Queensland Health. And so we did like a little side hustle together. And then it was, um, it was like a falls injury prevention company where we would have occupational therapists go into the home and do an assessment. And then we provide goods and services off the back of that because my grandma had had a fall and my wife had some experience with falls prevention and so it could have definitely been a business, but it was very uh, enterprise-led, so government contracts, enterprise-led industry. I wasn't really passionate about it, so it was a good learning experience and and then I just went into consulting. So the kids had already got to about five by then, so you know, for anyone looking to do this, like that first few years of having kids is probably not the ideal situation. So I had a really great job through that period, like with a really high income and so that was fine and so by the time I took the jump, the family sort of felt ready and and I had all, you know, I risk managed the hell out of it as an accountant, you know, so I had all my milestones that I had to hit and, you know, my contracts with my wife to make sure that it wasn't just like going crazy or anything. So, you know. Burning <laughs> we, kids' inheritance, school fees. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Talk me through the decision-making process and risk managing that change because it is a huge decision for anyone looking to switch from having an in irregular income through to joining a startup. Yeah, like it's, I hardly wouldn't recommend it for most people. I think you have to be like wildly insane and 
And with the fire, I think having a finance background, if you're a high risk taker and you have high risk tolerance and you have great risk management skill, it's actually a wonderful combination because I can carry a lot more risk than a normal person just because having done it as a career for 10 years. So I can plan well, I can navigate problems really well, I can look for risk really, really well. So that was a wonderful skill to have. Although I don't think anybody really knew I was doing it here because you know, you're working with engineers and stuff and they just think everything's working out and you're like, okay, I'm doing that. <laughs> and you try and explain it to them and they don't understand and you're like, oh, well, I'm doing it anyway because someone has to do it. Risk management is key. So the first thing I did was I did consulting in the tech industry because it's not like 100% risk of still bringing my financial skill, but I was getting into an industry that I wanted to get into. So that's a bit of risk management. Then I started working more closely with a couple of companies, even in a general management role, I had a general manager role for a while. I was trying to learn the ins and outs of a tech company. What I learned was they're so bad at managing their money. It's crazy. The capital raising process is a nightmare. And then later on, I learned the stock ESOP process is equally badly implemented and run. So I was just starting to see all this pain and poor management and this problem. And then then I met my co-founder, Kim. And again, we kept the consulting going for quite some time. So we had quite good incomes. And it wasn't until we were looking for products along the way that we could scale. So we were earning income all the time, looking for the right products. And then, then we took the big plunge. Was that a deliberate strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So we we had one, we raised some money for it a little bit, not, not a lot, but a bit. We tried it and then it didn't succeed. So that was the first sort of foray out of consulting into something a bit more product. Which one was that? It was called Enhanced Society. It was a like a crypto platform to help companies create tokens. And we were trying to find quality projects and cut through all the noise, but we found out it was 99.9% noise. Yeah, at that time. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> yep. there was no quality. So we're like, oh, we better get out of here quick. Anyway, so that was a bit of pain. And we did want to do an ICO because we're both, like as much as we're risk takers, like that just seemed like a total cluster. So we didn't do an ICO. And so anyway, so we did that and then that didn't really work out and we had to let most of the team go and that was pretty hard. And then, but it was from all that, that we saw cake. We didn't want to go back to consulting. We had a bit of runway left and we're like, let's try, we need to try and like, just get through this really hectic period because getting consulting going again takes time. And, and then we we're fortunate once we found cake. So the three big factors we're looking at at the time was, did we care about the problem? And did we think we could solve the problem? So like, were we the right people, I guess, was that first part. The second part was, was it a really big problem? And then the third part was, is there a strong trend behind it? Because we didn't want to be working against industry trends. It just makes your life so much more difficult. And yeah, so we did some research around that for about six months. And then around January 2019, we thought, all right, well, let's go to the next stage. So we've got a logo and a website and stuff like that and really started to work on it. Just going back to Kim, how did you meet Kim? Yeah, we met together. uh, We met um, doing some volunteer work on the Gold Coast, actually, in the tech space. So I was new to the tech industry from from sort of family office and corporate, and he was new to the Gold Coast ecosystem from Europe. And so a great way to make your way in a new industry is to volunteer, get involved and get your hands dirty and contribute. And then people see you and get to know you and trust you. And then it really worked well for me. And that's how I met Kim. And we didn't hit it off immediately necessarily, but we both sort of saw something in each other that, that we thought we could 
I was very impressed with Kim in some ways because his background was so incredibly strong. He'd been building tech for the likes of Google and Samsung and Roche all over the world in the valley. And I was like, wow, look at this guy here on the Gold Coast. I didn't necessarily think I wanted to hang out with him every day, but I was trying to help him get set up here on the coast. And then we realized like we just got this incredible yin-yang mindset and skill set. Plus, we're also both very passionate about innovation, entrepreneurship, and having a huge impact. And so just over the course of a year or so, the relationship just got stronger and stronger. And then he finally convinced me to help him with this crypto crazy stuff. It took him quite a while to convince me because I was like, what the hell is Ethereum? And I just didn't really want to borrow it. It all sounded like crazy mumbo jumbo to me. But anyway, he eventually convinced me. And I guess it was a good, well, so far it's looking like a good decision to work together. What sort of conversations did you have? Were they social social interactions in order for you to work out that you could work with this guy? Not just work with him, but you know, start a company with him, which is like forming a marriage with someone, really. Yeah, it's tricky. It's really tricky. There's multiple facets to it. I think socially we're very different. Like our communication style is extremely different. And that was challenging. That was the, the most hard part initially. And we still we still know that's the case. You know, Kim is the, one of the most intelligent, hardworking, full and optimized people you could ever meet. Like powerful, powerful guy. But I, I'm such a, like, you know, even though I'm incredibly dedicated and hardworking in a social situation, I'm like super chill, <laughs> like having fun, relaxing, you know, but our values are very well aligned, like family oriented, spend time in nature, really focus on your health as like a core pillar for success. So those things were very aligned and they're very important to both of us. So a lot of common ground, even though we had some things that don't work. And I don't think any relationship is other than that. You know, like imagine you found someone that was like a perfect match. You'd like, it's a parallel universe, especially once you dig deep. Like you could probably find that at a superficial level. And then our skill sets, like he can't, he couldn't sell. And I couldn't build anything, you know, so I'm like, I need somebody to raise. Like at the beginning, it just looked like I was riding his coattails everywhere because I was just running around selling him to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> But I think in I think over the long term, I hope over the long term, it's been proven that I'm I'm pulling my weight. <laughs> Let's get back to cake equity and the problem that cake equity is looking to solve. Firstly, you said one of the things when you were looking for ideas or projects to get involved in, one of the things you looked at is whether you care enough about the problem. So why do you care about this particular problem? The problem that we care about most is that society needs innovation, in our opinion. The status quo creates stagnant power and decay, in my, you know, kind of in my opinion. And we need rejuvenation within society to sort of achieve the goals and sort of progress as a race and as a society. And so, so to tackle things like global warming, or I'm a little bit about, I'm a bit against corporate greed and corruption as well, personally. Like, really hate the abuse of power like i've just like it's just makes me wild so it's a double-edged sword for someone like me because you need to be very like aggressive capitalist about assass but at the same time i try and be very can i put you on record as you're not going to be involved in any form of corporate greed when cake equity becomes a unicorn yay of course if i do please come and kick me as far as you can (laughs) Or pull this out and show it like to me or put it on the news. I don't care. Like it would be, I'd be so disappointed if I make those mistakes. If, you know, if, if in five years time, I've got a billion dollar company and wandering around being a dickhead and like wielding my power and not helping people, I'd be devastated. 
So, you know, it's, it's super, super important to us. I think you can see it in our brand. You can see it about how we go about ourselves. You know, you can see it in the community that we've built, that we, we give first people. We, we care about the people we're helping. We care about creating a better future. Exactly. What's good about what we do is we don't have to solve the problems ourselves necessarily. We're sort of providing the tools to help the people go and solve the problems. We don't want them sitting, talking to lawyers and accountants, you know, no offense, but like we want the accountants and lawyers to be there when they're needed because they are needed. It's critical, like it's hectic as, but we don't want them dealing with all this admin and, you know, really getting stuck with this stuff. We want them getting through their rounds. We want them getting through their ESOPs. We want them hiring great teams and changing the world and spending more time with their customer. And so even though it is a small thing, we really connect into it as a company uh, and our team really connect into it. And that's a superpower in itself, I think, when you're building a company and growing a company, just having a real connection into purpose certainly helps me. Not so much now as it did in the beginning, but when we were like killing ourselves, <laughs> like not getting paid. Eating baked beans. It was a nice thing to have to fall back on for motivation, energy. How did you validate the idea? The very first thing we did was we went and talked to 10 customers and we built like a little spreadsheet, sort of had, I can't remember exactly what was in the spreadsheet. I should pull it out. Maybe I can share it with you. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. It had like, how are you doing it now? You know, might've said on the scale of one to 10, what do you think of ASIC or something like that? Yeah, I don't know. But the main thing was, all we were trying to learn, I think, was are they using a spreadsheet? Does anyone have a better solution than a spreadsheet right now? That was like the big thing we we're trying to test. And 10 out of 10 were using a spreadsheet. And we're like, okay, that's a good sign. And then we went to talk to industry leaders, like for example, Aaron Burkeby at River City Labs up in Brisbane. He was, I think, the EIR at the time. And we just sort of said, hey, what do you think about this, this problem? And he said, this is the biggest problem. Like every single day, someone asks me about this stuff, the cap table. They hate it. They don't understand it. When you're capital raising, before you're capital raising, after capital raising, stock option plans, like he was like, this is hectic stuff. So that was a really big validator. And Kim kept wanting me to dig in more because he's like, look, it's a problem, but is it a big problem? You know, does it really hurt people to the point where they, they're up like, you know, like their face scrunches up. And then, but when you talk, we would have affable founders come in and you know what they're always like, oh, everything's amazing. And you'd say, oh, what do you think of your cap table and ASIC? And they would just go, I'd jump their face. They'd start complaining. They'd say things like, oh, I never want to see that ever again. And we, and we thought, oh, hang on a sec. This is cool. This is the sort of amount of pain that you want to feel when you're looking to solve a problem. I mean, I can speak from our experience in our practice is that we have a lot of founders that ask us to look after the cap table and prepare the cap table for them, which we can do because we've done it for so many years, but it's really not something that we should be managing. If anyone that you're going to outsource it to, it should probably be an accountant. But when we're the ones who have to do it only because we have the experience to do it, you feel like there needs to be another solution to make it easier. There's so many users. Does the lawyers will be doing the contracts and kind of putting the numbers in the contract, really, really important. But then who does the ASIC lodgement? Who keeps the track of it in between? Oh, now there's stock options and like there's so many users and really in Australia, nobody takes ownership of it. That's what we found. So we went to lawyers and accountants and the founders and everybody kind of nobody was really owning it at all as well. So that was another thing. Everybody was like, somebody please off. Yes, it does. It gets passed through to the accountant, back to the company, to the lawyers, and then things get missed along the way. And it's something that just as an advisor, we never make any money doing it, but it's something that we end up doing it because it's so complex. Many people don't know how to. 
So yes, there you go. There's more validation. <laughs> Especially with pre-seed seed rounds. Like once you get to series A, the round gets kind of juicy. Everybody's going good. But like pre-seed and seed rounds, like no one's getting paid properly for that. There's so much admin. Everyone's signing in the wrong place and so many mistakes. So we help the lawyers with all the paper pushing. We let them do their lawyer work and then everybody's happier. So in the US, the lawyers are much more dominant in this process is something that we've learned. So they really do control the cap table. So it's a slightly different ecosystem there, but we found a little niche, a little problem that no one was solving and it's a good thing. <laughs> so let's talk about your cap raising. You've done a couple of pre-seed rounds through 2019 and through to 2022, right through the pandemic, which hasn't been an easy time for tech startups to raise capital. Did you do a priced round or convertible notes for those rounds? We've been on a bit of a journey. So we originally did a con note, uh, but then we pivoted that company. So that didn't really count, but we kept all those investors with us because we didn't want to burn them. And then we did another little safe. And we did a safe the second time because safes weren't really around in Australia in like 2017. They were just brand new and no one was doing, especially in Queensland. By 2019, it was a bit more common. So we did a safe. So we did a safe and then we did a $1 million. Our seed round was equity, $1 million, which on a global scale, a $1 million Aussie dollar seed round is ridiculous. It's like nothing. Now that we're in the US, seed round in the US, I mean, probably lower this year, but it's like 2 or $3 million US minimum seed round. It's crazy in Australia how little capital people get. And everything's really expensive here, although wages in America are out of control. So probably balanced to the cost of engineers and stuff, perhaps. But um. Yeah, so we did a one million dollar seed, and then we did, then we did a three million dollar price round. That was the one that was led by. That was pretty cool. We got Jason Calacanis. Jason Calacanis, yep. Crazy, couldn't believe it. He's a great name to have on your cap table. How did you meet Jason? Yeah, it was really a combination of coincidence and hustle. So we were obviously always hustling like crazy. I think it's my number one skill. Someone posted a thread in the Startmate Slack. Jason Calacanis has posted about cap tables. And so I got some friends and customers to jump in the thread and then talk about cake. And then I got one of our advisors, Dean, I asked him if he could email Jason. He had his email address because he'd recently been down in Australia. And um, anyway, one thing led to another. It was pretty quick because we were just finishing Startmate and obviously getting into Startmate. It's a, you know, 500 apply, 10 get in kind of thing. It's the top accelerator. So we're in a really good situation already. And he probably knew some of those brands and logos and stuff. So he sort of seen that and we were talking to a few VCs in Australia and we're trying to create FOMO and get the round done at the end of the accelerator. And he just came in and just went, bam, yeah, led the round really quick, pretty stoked. So he saw you through the Startmate program? No, mainly through Twitter. So we first chatted on Twitter and then, and then email and then a call. So it was at the end of Startmate, but it wasn't through Startmate. So we were talking with Airtree and Rampersand and a bunch of VCs off the back of Startmate, as you would hope going through that program. You want the best VCs to come in and check you out. Rampersand joined that round as well. So we were pretty close with Rampersand at the time anyway. So we made sure we negotiated Rampersand in as well. So we got a couple of pretty good, good investors on, or not pretty good, like we were ecstatic, I suppose, to get excellent investors. They're great names to have on your cap table. And I've seen many founders get buyer's remorse from investors, even well-known investors. How did you vet Jason and Rampersand to determine that they were actually the right investors for you at this stage in your business? 
Uh, yeah, Rampersand was pretty easy because Paul Napthali and Johan, one of our original founders, I didn't even mention Johan. I keep like a, no love to Johan, but um, he was a founder, but he, he was here for like a really short time. Came in after me and Kim and then he left because we just had too many founders and we couldn't get anything done. So Johan and Paul knew each other really, really well. And so it was really easy for me to trust those guys. And they had, you know, they had quite a good reputation as well. They were known to be kind of founder, founder friendly. Jason was easier to DD really because like you look at all his stuff, he's so founder friendly. Like everything he talks about is like founder first, founder friendly, founder terms. He was very quick to do the deal. He was very fair to deal with. He gave us a really fair term sheet. He was a bit easier because he's got such a huge profile. And in my mind, I'm thinking, whoa, if he's saying all this stuff publicly and doing different things in private, this is going to come out. So I think I just trust the public persona and... Yeah, it's turned out to be really good so far. They both invested again in our current the round we just did. So pretty excited for that. Rampersand actually led it. So how awesome that we we're able to get them in on the first, you know, on that US seed and then have them lead our next round. So we're ultra grateful for that. How did you get them to come on as lead? I think at the end of the day, because we got caught up in all the drama last year, like everybody did, it was impossible not to. So we were going to raise a much bigger round and we had to completely change our expectations and in Rampersand's credit, they totally helped us through that. They helped us understand the market. They helped us understand where the deals were. They helped us set the valuation, like the cap val cap on the safe. They helped us rebuild our financial models. So they, they spent quite a bit of time with us building trust that one, the financial model could make it through this period. And the two, we were good enough leaders. Um, it was a strong enough product to be able to get through. I think that's what they were thinking. That's, that's kind of the indications they've given us. And so after working with them for a couple of months through those things and then investment committee and everything, we're able to to get them to lead. And then obviously that's a huge factor in any deal. And so we're able to then go and we've been able to do so well as well throughout this whole time. Like our growth has been insane. Our retention is incredibly high, constantly improving the product. So I guess when you're just constantly, constantly delivering at a, at a high to exceptional level, there's always supporters. What was the most challenging thing that they asked you during the raise this last time round? I guess the financial pressure was pretty challenging. We had to significantly reduce our burn versus our revenue growth. We had to significantly reduce our CAC spend. We had to cut, we had to cut a few team members. So we had to really take a lot of pain. But fortunately, and somehow we managed to get through that. And in a matter of only three or four months, we got all of our unit economics into an incredibly strong situation. So it was painful, but in the end, you did that really as a important. result of investor feedback. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And I guess market conditions. So I think it's it's very important for leaders to be aware of what market conditions are and what market expectations are, and adjust your financial plans accordingly. And so. Absolutely. Just going back to your first priced equity round, how many potential investors did you meet before you closed the round? A thousand. Good. I like to hear that number. (laughs) It was ridiculous. So the key moment was I got Richard Moore to come on and lead the round and he's like a well-known Brisbane angel and he's very well-known now. I think he's like multiple angel of the year type stuff now. And he came on the board and so he vouched for us. I remember sitting in Brisbane with him one day and I said, I am committing my career to this company. I am going to make this work. And then I just watched the penny drop with him. He's like, right, let's do this. So with one of his colleagues, we went on this huge roadshow. We made the deck and we made the model and we went, oh, geez, I must have had like a, how many meetings I had. I used to have this joke, which was like, 
validate me, validate me. <laughs> so I was just cruising around everywhere. It was so early and we were getting so many knockbacks and so many challenges and like everybody thought we were crazy and how are you going to go up against this and how are you going to go up against that? And oh my God, it was the worst. What was was the difference? Because you've got US investors on your cap table and Australian. What's what's the difference between in the conversations you were having between US investors versus Aussies? Yeah, it's a really tricky thing. I could get myself in a bit of trouble with this question. Uh, Not that I'm too scared to pull punches, but generalizing, Australian investors are more conservative. I think that's, you think I can say that quite clearly. Is that the case even after you've got a lead? Well, it de-risks it a lot. So, yeah, it's the same. It's still being conservative. So a non-conservative investor will find a great founder and find a niche they like and lead around. That's a risk. That's an investor with risk appetite. Now, I'm not telling investors what to do. They can do whatever the hell they want. It's their money or it's their LP's money, right? So that's not my responsibility. But that's a, an investor with risk appetite. Like that's how we invest. I've got a little investment company. Okay, really good founder. I really like the space. I get the problem. You've got a lead investor. Right. I mean, but I actually see that as pretty good risk management, but a lot of people wouldn't. And a lot of, but like a lot of angel investors, you know, and it's getting better now, but they want to see everything, every answer and every document and all the spreadsheet. And, and like, it's like, I just only started doing this like one year ago. And again, maybe you don't deserve money at that point. Sort of investor challenged me last night on a panel I was on, you know, like if you are one of those amazing, exceptional founders that should get VC money, then you probably should be able to do all that stuff. And I thought, maybe that's true. (laughs) Maybe that's true. Second time around, I'm going to be a hell of a lot better founder if I decide to do it again. So I kind of get it. But US investors, look, and it's, it's 2021 and 2023 are completely different. Of course, everybody kind of knows that, but like, and I guess perhaps the risk appetites between Australia and the US will be more in line in 2023. That's probable. And perhaps Australian investors could be validated in the investment strategies that they had and the valuation multiples that they were happy to adhere to and, and the amount of information that they were expecting to be able to invest. So there's probably some validation coming through now for that strategy. What was your approach towards building relationships with prospective investors? This list of a thousand people who you went to see. I've tried so many different things. The pre-seed round was just like anybody that would give me money that I didn't, I felt like I wasn't ripping off. <laughs> like if they're big enough and smart enough to waste their own money, I was like, fine, I'll take it. <laughs> of course, without being fraudulent, which is always like 50-50 in the beginning because holy moly, you've got nothing going on. So, you know, the first round is just hectic as hell. And then the second round was actually Richard. Once I convinced Richard Moore, I went his network and led that for me. That was utilizing that network. And then uh, the next round, we utilized Startmate. So being in in a great accelerator just does all the investor. Well, I shouldn't say that. It does a lot of the investor work for you because it's like moths to the flame kind of principle. To be honest, I probably could have done a bit better with the investor management. But, oh, my God, there's so many things to do. And we got a good round done. So I guess it's okay. And then the last round, well, we were going to go and do a whole campaign again, but then the downturn hit. And so we did more or less of an inside round. Once we had the leads, we sort of extended it out a bit. So that was a different strategy again. So they've all been very different. But the next round, what we're doing is we're making a list of maybe 20, 30 investors that we really, really want to raise for. And we're going to try and spend the whole next year building a relationship with them and listening to them and doing strategy with them and showing that we execute so that by the time we want to raise, because uh, we won't need to raise next time is the plan. We'll have those relationships really well built and we'll probably know which ones are most likely and 
hopefully the actual raising part is a lot easier and quicker. I, I did try and do that once before, but then I went and pitched everybody and they all said no. So <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't always work, but that's the strategy. Actually, how much did you, so the last round that you did was actually a rights issue with existing investors? Uh, no, it was a safe again. It was another safe. So yeah. Yeah, Rampersand and Launch and then some other existing cap table and then a couple of new the new people came in. Oh, and Aussie Angels actually did really well. Like they're such a good platform. They've got so many investors on there. So if you, if you look good, you can really raise some money with, uh, with Aussie Angels at the moment, which is cool. Jason, what's one thing you can share with other founders who are thinking about raising capital or embarking on the capital raising journey, particularly in these challenging environment at the moment? Yeah, so... I think you can raise capital is probably the first thing to say, definitely. You have to match the market. So if you were raising last year with a pitch deck, don't be raising this year with the same pitch deck. Don't be raising this year with the same valuation. Don't be raising this year with the same capital raising expectation. Doomed to fail. So the key is to do with the market research. How you do that is you talk to investors, you talk to advisors, you talk to founders that have done deals. You read the reports, you watch the podcasts. So you're doing all that research and you're trying to work out where in all this is money going to be flowing? Because if it's not flowing, you're not getting any. So you need to go where it's flowing or you need to pivot your company to profitability. They're really the only two options. So just do your research, do your homework. There is still funding going on. All the investors in Australia will say we're still investing. They're investing a bit slower. They're investing a bit less. So expect it to take a bit longer and be a bit more difficult. But but it certainly can happen. Invent, like Go to people that trust you already and know you like we did, like go to your current cap table, go to people that might have known you for a few years that might not have invested. So work to your strengths, work where you're known and be humble. Like if you have to take a haircut on the valve, if you still believe in your mission, there's nothing broken with your company and there's nothing broken with your market and you're still able to carry on, you might have to take a down round. Who cares? Or wait, change your unit economics extend your runway out, grow into your valuation over time with your revenue growth, or just take your haircut. I don't even know why people are so scared of down rounds. I mean, markets go up, markets go down, companies need money. I don't know, maybe this is the accountant in me. Jason, I'd like to finish off with what we call the quick six, which is six rapid fire questions. Well, I'm very bad at answering in a rapid fire fashion, but I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite work from home lunch or snack? Smoothies. Any flavors in particular? I'm, I'm doing a lot of smoothies these days. Yeah, like banana and berry or like chalk banana, peanut butter one. Like both those real just go-to. I can literally eat them all day, every day. <laughs> nice. I had a banana and berry smoothie this morning with a bit of spinach. Nice. You're a good one. That's good. Yeah, get the spinach in there. I should do that. What's your favorite team building exercise for remote teams? I'm actually really enjoying this thing built into Slack, which is like the Slack donut. It's probably like for someone like me to say something like that, because I'm really good at connecting here. We've got a great culture. We go surfing, we go outdoors, but remote is really challenging. But I've liked lately, I get these reminders from Slack to have a chat with someone. And so we book in a call, we can have a chat or we can just have a Slack chat. And that's really been helping me connect with the global team. What's a book that you've gifted recently or one that you've gifted most? I actually don't gift books, but I, I regularly talk about books. So the top three books that I, I highlight to founders, Disciplined Entrepreneurship, Bill Outlet, which is sort of like a summary of the whole of MIT's entrepreneurship program. It's super heavy, but it's amazing for founders. I regularly talk about The Mum Test, which is M-O-M. It's an American book. It's about 
how to talk to your customer without leading them, how to really learn from your customer. Amazing book, especially for non, non-product people that are in a product company, like just actually understand what the hell's going on a little bit better. And then one I talk about a lot that I've recently been having some discussions about its awesomeness with my CMO, but um, I really love this book called Traction. So the big premise that I got from that was spend half your time on your product and half your time on your customer. So be selling early. If you spend all your time on your product, you're absolutely going to build the wrong thing. That's the first thing. And then it just gives you a bit of a process to work out which channels to use to go to market. So pretty cool book. I think I've got that one on my bookshelf. Let's just turning around and having a look that I haven't read yet. So I'll have to open that one up. <laughs> that one was gifted to me, actually. <laughs> I'm not the best reader. I'm like, it's a real weakness of mine. Everybody else found is like reading a million books a year. And I'm like, it's not my forte. <laughs> what about documentary or podcasts? Have you watched any or listened to any recently that you would recommend? Yeah, definitely. My favorite podcast is the All In podcast with Jake Al and Jamath and David and that. Like, just love how they unpack tech and politics and argue with each other and yeah it's really really interesting and insightful and then i think i just started listening to a like a fiction podcast and i never really knew this was a cool thing it's called against the odds it's like a there's a team of climbers putting something on a peak in in india to spy on china and i'm like this is a cool addition to my podcast repertoire (laughs) yeah yeah no that's a good one what's your dream holiday destination Ooh, interesting right now i would have to say going snowboarding i'm really just been a little bit recently and just rekindled this love for it i did a lot in my 20s and then being a queenslander it's a bit of a challenge but um Absolutely incredible feeling being in the snow, being in the mountains, just flying down, flying down the mountain. So yeah, doing that with family and friends, I think it'd be my ideal trip right now. And finally, if you could have dinner with any person in the world, alive or dead, who would it be and why? It would be Elon Musk. I just love his vision and inspiration. You know, I think people are down for various reasons and everybody has their weaknesses, but for me, I'm a big picture guy, as I said earlier, like I sort of feel like humanity in mind as opposed to myself in mind. And I don't know if I was born that way or how that happened. But like when I hear about someone who has humanity in mind and is trying to go to Mars to provide that that potential longevity in the species and push us forward and that sort of stuff is ultra, ultra inspiring to me. And then the way that he's been able to tackle that problem and then a range of other ultra critical and impossible problems at the same time, really incredibly inspiring. I reckon I would be in total shock if I was at dinner with him. I wouldn't be able to talk. <laughs> <laughs> starstruck. <laughs> yeah, it does happen. Have you been starstruck? Oh, my God, it's only happened to me a few times. But um, No, who have you been starstruck by? Oh, no, no, you're really putting me on the spot. So the first time it happened was when I saw Julia Roberts outside a theatre in New York. Because I think it's just because they've been in so many pivotal movie moments and then all of a sudden they're right there. It was weird. I just had this huge rush. And then the next time was when I saw Steph Gilmore at, at a gig. So Steph Gilmore was like legendary Aussie surfer. Like it hasn't happened many times, but I think Elon would definitely be hard to... Uh, I hope the conversation would go well, I guess. I try not to be starstruck. You know, everybody's just a person at the end of the day. But, I mean, 
We have to see how we go. Stalk him on Twitter. <laughs> You're very good at that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jason, this has been lots of fun. How do people find you? Yeah, well, if you're on LinkedIn, you'd be hard not to find me. And I'm also on Twitter now. I'm trying that out. So, yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter. It would be the best place, yeah. Thanks for your time today. I'm very grateful for you. No, thanks for having me. It was absolutely awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you deeper into founder stories about capital raising. We'll have all the contact details for Jason and Cake Equity in our show notes. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe or follow the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, share the love and leave us a five-star review. It really helps us spread these amazing founder stories far and wide. I'm Mylin Dang, and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into a founder's capital raising journey.